If you have your Bibles, um, we are returning to the narrative concerning Naaman today. And last week, uh, we were introduced to this Syrian commander uh, of an army. He was an important, wealthy, powerful man, but he had a major uh, crisis in his life. He was diagnosed with leprosy, this terrible um, uh, skin disease. And from his Israelite servant girl, uh, this Syrian commander by the name of Naaman was given hope that there was a solution, that there was a prophet in Israel by the name of Elisha who could heal him. And later, Naaman was told by the servant uh, of Elisha that if he dipped in the Jordan River seven times, he would be healed. Now, at first, the, the noble, high and mighty Naaman was offended by such a suggestion. But after some time, he was uh, persuaded to, to go ahead. And what did he really have to lose? And so after dipping seven times within the Jordan River, our text reads that he was wonderfully healed. And this brings us to our text this morning. This is the rest of the story. So I invite you to stand for the hearing and the reading of the Word of God. 2 Kings, beginning in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 15. Then he, that is Naaman, returned to the man of God, Elisha. He and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I, uh, uh, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he uh, urged him to take it, but Elisha the prophet refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let, uh, let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm. And I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, 
what have you seen, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Would you pray with me? Father, open our ears that we might hear. Pierce through the hardness of our hearts that we might not miss or confuse the teaching of your spirit. We ask that according to your kindness and steadfast love, that you would continue to reveal yourself to us, that you would place your words on our lips. We are your people and we need you to show us how we are to live. Be present with us now for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Part of the framework that I'm working with as I just look at this healing of Naaman is that in the healing, we have this really clear, profound picture of the grace of God, of God's saving grace for us. So the way this healing is operating is the same way in which God's grace that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ operates. And right away, what we learn about God's grace in this narrative is that this grace, that God's grace is free. After Naaman is healed, he returns to the home of Elisha. Naaman really is, you know, you think, well, why didn't he just return back to Syria? You know, he he got away scot-free. That's just not how Naaman rolls. That's not how he operates. He, he He knows that he has an obligation to go back to the prophet and to express gratitude uh, for what has taken place. That's just part of his his character. And so as he returns, he stands before Elisha, um, and he issues this confession of faith in verse 15. He says um, uh, to Elisha, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, So accept now a present from your servant. Naaman is convinced of at least two things, and both of which are correct. He knows that he has been healed, but not ultimately by the prophet. Maybe he thought that, you know, Elisha's like Gandalf or something. You know, he's like this wizard. He's going to wave his hands around and poof, you know, he's healed. But now given the distance and given how this this miracle has taken place, he knows better, doesn't think that there's something, you know, just that this came from Elisha. He knows, in fact, that he was healed by Yahweh, the God specific to Israel. He knows that Yahweh is the true God. And if Yahweh is the true God, one other thing he probably knows about Israelite worship is they're declaring um, that there's only one God. And so you can see how the logic is working here. If Yahweh is the true God, Yahweh has healed him, then what Yahweh teaches must also be true, that he's the only God, that all other gods are merely idols. And so what this means is um, that he, as part of his, um, his confession of faith, is he realized that Rimon, the storm god of Syria, is only, uh, you know, just a false god, an idol. 
And from here on out, Naaman will follow and serve Yahweh. This is sound theology. Second, Naaman knows something about the gift of healing that he has received. He knows that he has received a life-altering, a life-saving gift that is worth a king's ransom in wealth. Indeed, Naaman has transported with him conservatively uh, roughly 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. And, and I was reading that the gold itself would translate into the annual, uh, a year's worth of salary for 600 average workers in his day. This is a massive amount of wealth that he has with him, along with 10 changes of clothing. Again, this is not like, you know, going down to the thrift shop. This, this is probably well-tailored, fine um, clothing, itself worth a fortune in those days. And, and what we're meant to see is that he, he brings this massive wealth because he intends to exchange it for the miracle of healing. This is the value that Naaman assigns to the possibility of being healed of his leprosy. And so here in, in the narrative, the Lord is showing us at least a couple, um, uh, 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 some principles on, on the one hand, God is showing us the value of his saving grace to us who have received a healing that's not just about a skin disease. It's not just a physical issue. That's not the kind of healing we're talking about uh, in the church today. We're talking about the healing of our sin and our guilt a healing from a problem that, that ostracizes us, that makes us a pariah in the sight of God. We're talking about a healing that, that doesn't just change us uh, in the present, and it doesn't just last a lifetime like the healing of leprosy would. Naaman's still going to die. But in the New Testament, in the gospel of grace proclaimed by the Lord Jesus Christ, we're talking about a miraculous healing of sin and guilt that leads to eternal life forever. And when we consider the alternative to that healing from sin and guilt, when we continue to think about how it alienates, our sin guilt alienates us from God, it places us under God's threatened wrath a wrath that will endure for eternity in hell if we continue in our sin and guilt. When we consider the option, the alternative, we have to understand that the gift that we receive through the gospel of grace is a gift that is worth everything that we can imagine. It's worth infinite wealth if we had such a thing. That's partly what this is trying to remind us of. We get so comfortable with our grace that we take it for granted. Now, it would be natural for Naaman to conclude that to be healed of such a a disease like leprosy would, in fact, cost him everything. That is the value of the healing as he views it. But the Bible wants us to understand something else. The Bible wants us to also understand that even though the gift itself is of the highest worth, of the highest value, that the gift is to be received without cost. This is made so evident in the passage where you see Naaman's well-prepared. He's not going in empty-handed. He's not going to be a debtor to anybody 
even for a gift like miraculous healing. So he's well prepared to give fabulous wealth in exchange. He's not going to, again, he's not going to be a debtor to any man. And, and this is where I think Elisha shows that he is a true man of God. Sometimes you think, okay, you think that pastors and priests, like, oh, we don't care about money. <laughs> we, we don't have those kinds of, you know, temptations. No, Elisha is staring in the face of, you know, okay, even in spiritually, spiritual terms. Lord, I, I'm, this is probably, I can imagine, Elisha did not get a lot of sleep the night before. <laughs> Lord, you want me not to take anything from this seer? This, he's a Gentile. Can't we, like, plunder the, the, the enemy here? And, and besides, Lord, it's going to go for a great cause. I'm, I, a seminary? How badly we need a seminary in the northern kingdom? I mean, think about these poor prophets and the sons of these seminary students. This is a time of famine and deprivation. What are you thinking, Lord? I mean, so Elisha's showing us something here about his own character. (laughs) Because when Naaman offers him a present, okay, he's willing to give everything he's brought. And probably along with the servants he's brought, if you want them, take them too. He's willing to give up everything he has because he appreciates, he understands the worth of what he has received. And Elisha doubles down. I mean, he makes it so clear in verse 16 right away. And maybe, you know, I would love just to see this on tape, how Elisha says this. As the Lord lives, choke, (laughs) gulp, before whom I stand. So Elisha's saying, You've come to me. You've referred to me as a serv- uh, as as being my servant. Now I'm telling you, I serve a, a far greater master, the one before whom I stand. That is the Lord Yahweh. By his, by the Lord who lives, I will receive none. That's a definitive. He's taking an oath. This is a definitive statement of his refusal, flat out refusal to even entertain the idea of taking one penny from Naaman. God is not finished with teaching about his saving grace. God wants both Naaman. He wants us to learn this critical truth. He wants us to understand that this is the grace of God, as rich and valuable as it is, is something that cannot be purchased. It cannot be earned. It cannot be merited. We can't work for it. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. This is what the Apostle Paul is making clear. For by grace, for by God's saving grace, you have been saved through faith. Faith is the instrument by which we reach out to receive this saving grace. And this is not your own doing, he says. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God's grace comes to us freely, and this also means then that God receives all the glory. God is not any man's debtor either. Well, not only is God's grace free, at least to us, you see it costs Jesus everything, of course, but we also see in this narrative how God's grace transforms. We see where that grace is genuinely received, where it is genuinely experienced, it 
works change. And this becomes evident in our text as well. That God's grace has affected more than Naaman's physical body is seen in his response to Elisha. There is a change in his demeanor, first of all. Previously, Naaman had come with great pomp and circumstance. He's a great man, and he knows it. This is why he's offended. He's enraged when Elisha just sends out his servant uh, with a message of how he is to be healed. But now, in this, this little response of roughly three verses, Naaman refers to himself as Elisha's servant four times. Now, that's important language because this is the language Gehazi uses when he stands before Elisha, that he is the servant of his master, Elisha. Elisha has just used the same language with respect to his master, Yahweh, four times. Now we see Naaman refer to Elisha, or refers to himself as Elisha's servant. This is important language. It signals a change in attitude. It's an important change, you know, from this kind of arrogant man to someone who's experienced a a life-altering gift. And and now we see this kind of humility that flows uh, from Naaman. He also sees it, um, uh, this kind of genuine um, uh, change when he requests, when Naaman requests of Elisha to pack two mules worth of, of Israelite soil. That may seem odd to us, but what Naaman wants to do is he wants to transport kind of the earth of Israel where Yahweh is present and transport it back to his homeland in Damascus in Syria. And there he's going to build on top of that soil an altar that will be specific to Yahweh. No longer will he offer sacrifices and offerings to the idols, only Yahweh. And we see, like, you see this kind of genuine, um, uh, this aspirational commitment to be who God wants him to be. And right away, he's committed to worship. It changes his worship. On the one hand, he's renouncing the idols. On the other hand, he's saying, the Lord Yahweh, for us, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is the one I worship. This is the one I will trust with my heart and with my soul. This is the one whose laws I will seek to apply within my life and to, uh, to follow. And again, he also shows the genuineness of his conversion as he's already working out the, the kind of the moral and the ethical implications of following this God of Israel. Naaman was a trusted and close advisor to the king of Syria. Naaman explains that there will be occasions when he is expected to enter into the pagan temple of Rimon, um, uh, kind of almost at the side of the king, holding on to his elbow. And there will be occasions where, as part of the worship of this idol, the king will kneel and he's going to be needed, he's going to have to kneel beside the king. And so, You know, it's such an interesting moral quandary that he's already anticipating. And and also of interest is Elisha's response, which is tantamount saying, it's okay. He just says, shalom, go in peace. Um, And and that's tantamount to saying, that will be okay. God will pardon you for this. And and maybe because it's not an active element of worship, um, it's something that's necessitated, but it's certainly a gray area. 
And it's hard to see Elisha giving that same kind of permission to a Jewish um, uh, believer. Um, But in this case, with the Gentile Syrian, he allows uh, for him to enter into the pagan temple and to bow alongside the king. And this raises just one. It shows the genuineness of his conversion. When a person comes to faith, they're going to have these kinds of ethical dilemmas that they're facing. They're going to ask, this is a natural outgrowth of God doing a work in our, in our lives. And sometimes these, these questions are difficult, you know, whether they're uh, related to a relationship we're in, whether they're related to our work situation or something we're being asked to do at work or, or the, the time of work. You know, what, what if you have, you know, I'm required to work on a Sunday. How does that work? And how do we navigate the ethical and the moral issues around that? Um, there, issues related to the government and politics and so forth. When you become a Christian believer, it does. This is, sometimes we think there's a problem that, oh man, now I have all these, these problems. No, this is a natural outgrowth of following Christ, of following God, of being the recipient of saving grace. And, and now I know some of you are thinking, well, it would be nice to have a prophet <laughs> like Elisha to just say, is this okay or not? And, and they can say yes or no. God has given us his word. He has given us his Holy Spirit. And God says as part of the new covenant that the the words of God and the spirit of God will remain with his people to the very end. And more than this, he's given us the church. He's given us people we can go to and we can wrestle with some of these very difficult and often personal questions as to the best way. And these are important conversations to have. But in all of this, we see how God's grace is at work. And this shouldn't surprise us. 2 Corinthians um, tells us this about the grace we have in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If nothing, and so here's the, the flip side of what I'm telling you. If you make a confession or profession of faith, you, you know, there's some Sunday where you just feel the Lord and, and you just, or you just led to say, I, I want to receive Jesus Christ. But then there's no change in how you're thinking. There's no change in your character. There, there's no, none of these kind of dilemmas that begin to rise up in your life. You need to go back and ask the question, have I really done business with the Lord? Have I really reached out in genuine faith and received the grace, this changing grace of the Spirit and of Christ in my life? Genuine grace transforms. Now, it doesn't make you perfect, but it does change you. Now, if our narrative ended here, it would be on a high note. But sadly, it continues on, and we see in Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, a cautionary tale of greed and its results. Gehazi has witnessed Elisha's refusal to take any material goods, and he can't believe it. Gehazi's thinking, how could you do this, um, Elisha? How could you allow this filthy, rich Gentile to get off scot-free? That's what he's thinking. 
And so Gehazi concocts this uh, story about Elisha suddenly needing uh, some money uh, and and clothing, not for himself, of course. He makes this all very plausible, uh, but for these two sons of the prophets who have suddenly arrived on Elisha's doorstep, and and they're in need. Could you spare just one talent of that silver and and maybe a couple pairs of clothing, given that there are two individuals involved? And Naaman doesn't suspect anything. Um, and of course, you know, whatever you want, Naaman says. And not only does he give him one talent of silver, and again, in ancient measurements, we're talking about pounds. So one talent is roughly 75 pounds. So um, Gehazi asked for 75 pounds of silver, and uh, Naaman said, oh, take two. <laughs> take two and take two uh, changes of clothing, and, and uh, my servants will carry it for you because he would have needed some help transporting uh, that amount of silver. Gehazi might have thought he got away with his ruse. And this is a reminder to us, but someone did see. God sees. God knows. He is omniscient. And this is revealed to Elisha, what Gehazi has done. And so when confronted by Elisha, a reversal takes place. By serving Elisha and Elisha's God, we see that Naaman is healed. However, by turning away from God, by betraying the prophet Elisha, in seeking after the world's goods, now Gehazi is cursed um, he's cursed with Naaman's leprosy. And now he's the one who will be banished from the presence of God, from the presence of Elisha. In a turn of events, the Gentile Naaman receives the, the saving grace of God. However, this Israelite, a close follower of one of the greatest prophets in all history, I mean, it would have been a great honor to be mentored by a man like Elisha. Many people would have given great sums of wealth and sacrifice to have been in the position of Gehazi. But Gehazi trades all of this in, and he shows that, in fact, his heart does not belong to Yahweh, doesn't belong to the prophet as he turns to the world. He lusts after the world's goods. And here's one of the themes of this passage. When you lust after the world's goods, do not be surprised if you end up with the world's pathologies. When you lust for the things that the world loves, that the world says will bring you happiness, but God says, no, this is idolatry. It leads to the world's pathologies. It leads to death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is, in fact, death, is what Proverbs tells us. Naaman ends up being accepted by God on the basis of faith. And Gehazi, the recipient of world-class teaching, is rejected. Now, let's think about what Gehazi is guilty of here a little bit. Well, the most obvious thing is it's greed, Elisha points to this when he rebukes Gehazi for having, you know, he talks about orchards and vineyards and sheep and oxen, male and female servants. What Elisha is pointing out here is 
it's not just, you know, the silver that he has in view, that he's pointing out that dancing in, in, um, before um, Gehazi's eyes are all the things that he's now going to be able to purchase, all the things he's now going to be, he's going to have. He's set is what the servant Gehazi is thinking to himself. But what is he doing? Well, he's placing his trust. He's looking for his ultimate satisfaction, his happiness, not in God, not in being faithful to the Lord, but in money, in wealth, in material goods. We need to be reminded of what the apostle tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Learn the lesson. You know, I know some of you have to touch the burner. (laughs) You won't listen to your parent when they say, don't touch that burner. It will burn you. God is telling you, do not touch the burner. Do not go after the world's uh, wealth. Do not seek to be rich. For the love of money. Now note, it's not money itself. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That is, you're turning uh, money. You're putting it in the place of God. You're turning it into an idol. Paul continues, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, and they have pierced themselves with many pangs. Friends, this is one of the great temptations of our age. The temptation of money, the temptation of greed. And it it affects all of us to one degree or another. But it's not just greed that Gehazi is guilty of. He's also showing his disregard for God himself. He's, He's uttering a kind of blasphemy to the, to the world about what God is about and what God is like. You see, God has arranged this beautiful illustration of his saving grace. He wants the world to know that his grace is free. It, it can't be purchased. It can't be bought. It can't be earned or merited. He wants us to be crystal clear. And what does Gehazi do? He ruins God's beautiful illustration And not only does he ruin the illustration, but he blasphemes God. He takes an oath. He himself says, as uh, as the Lord lives or as God lives. And then he brings, he blasphemes his own master, saying that this is Elisha's idea. He blasphemes both God and he blasphemes God's prophet. And the result of this is um, uh, is that he um, is rejected by God. This is exactly what Paul describes of a person by the name of Demas. Uh, This is in 2 Timothy, where Paul writes, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And Jesus tells us, uh, you know, kind of floating on the same theme, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own what? His own soul. Foolish, foolish, foolish. Well, let me just close with this summation. And this is actually from uh, uh, a scholar, Peter Lightheart, a, a pastor and teacher. Uh, Lightheart writes this as he sums this whole passage, and I like this. 
Um, the Israelites first to read the story would have been those Israelites during the Babylonian exile. This is when First and Second Kings, the, the whole thing was completed at that time. And he says, this story, this narrative instructs the Israelite exiles how they should conduct themselves while living among the Gentiles. Oh, so if you're listening, this applies, right, to us. And he says, they, the Israelites, are to serve the Gentiles by directing them, and now he's referring to the first part of the narrative, by directing the Gentiles as the little slave girl does for Naaman. That is, to direct the Gentiles to Yahweh, to the triune God as the source of cleansing and life. And also to the, to the uh, Israel in exile, through Gehazi, the Lord says, if you lust after Gentile wealth and power, then you will find yourselves going all the way, inheriting also Gentile exclusion and uncleanness. This is where this goes. And so what is true of Israel and Babylon is also true of the church today living in an increasingly secular age. We too need to show the confident, courageous faith of the little Israelite girl who served Naaman's household in our cities in our city, in our neighborhoods, and in our community. And we need to learn from Gehazi. We need to renounce the world's idols. We need to come clean, especially the idol of the almighty dollar. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful, Lord, for these Old Testament pictures, these types, these illustrations of grace, of the grace that we find in and only in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we like have to show that genuine heartfelt love for you, not just on the outside. Anybody can fake it. But Lord, may we show genuine character, Christ-like, godly character that is being transformed by your grace, by your mercy, by your love and, and word and, and, and spirit. And so we ask it with due humility, knowing we do not deserve this, but we pray it anyway. In Jesus' name, amen.